Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring the groundbreaking journeys of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, psychiatric, and mental health nurses in their quest to meet the urgent and unmet needs of minority communities in America. We are so excited to talk to today's guest, so let's get started. Dr. Marie Smith-East, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. Let me start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell me more about your background and what led you to become a nurse specializing in psychiatric and mental health care. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an interesting talk. I I never really feel like I'm that interesting, (laughs) but I do feel that a lot of what we'll talk about today can be very helpful for others that might be interested in pursuing, you know, a career as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. So I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, um, as well as a clinical assistant professor and the director of the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner program at Duquesne University. What got me interested in becoming a nurse, it's it's a really interesting story because both my mom and my grandmother are nurses. Um, my family's from Jamaica, but I never really wanted to pursue a career in nursing. At least my mom always encouraged me, go to pharmacy school, go to medical school, don't do nursing. So surprisingly, I was an elementary education major and uh, at the school that I attended University of Florida, they're very particular for elementary education majors. So you can't uh, really do their program and like specialize in pre-med or anything like that because their, their course to become an elementary educator is very intense. So I started off as an elementary education major. I used to teach my little teddy bears. So I always knew I wanted to do teaching. And then I went into um, health education and behavior, which I felt brought together both worlds of me wanting to pursue something in health education and then also uh, teaching. So in my quest of wanting to gain more hands-on experience, uh, I became certified as a emergency medical technician. So I still have that certification. I still help out um, at like, you know, cancer society walks and stuff like that. So It's been an interesting journey. I went from that until I had one of my paramedic uh, friends on ambulance said, hey, Marie, you should become a nurse. I'm like, that's funny because nursing runs in my family. So I actually applied to nursing school, got in, um, then told my mom. My mom was like, you sure you want to do nursing? (laughs) And then when I graduated, she was like, yay, third generation nurse. I was like, yeah, mom, right. (laughs) Um, But no, it's great. It's been really, really an interesting career. So what specifically prompted me to get as a, become a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner uh, is that I had a patient one night. I did emergency room nursing, and then I transitioned into intensive care. And I was working in a cardiac ICU, and I had a patient that was experiencing what they call um, ICU psychosis. So you're in the ICU for too long, and you start to see things, hear things, and it becomes a bit interesting. So I called the doctor uh, that was on call and I was telling him what was going on. And he told me to administer um, a particular medication um, that would help. And I gave it and it was like night and day. And I was like, man, I need to get into this. (laughs) Um, And at that point, that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to pursue studies as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And honestly, even then and now, it's been really interesting to see 
what the beauty of nursing, where it can really, really take you in so many different areas. So that's really my journey. One of the things I saw as I was doing research about your work and your trajectory, what struck me is, you know, a couple of years ago, you received the Volunteer of the Year Award from the Schizophrenia Related Disorders Alliance of America in recognition of being an on-the-call team member for four years. So tell me about that work and what do you do as a volunteer and why has it been important for you to, to be a volunteer? Very good question. My great-grandparents were actually missionaries in Jamaica for the Salvation Army. And when I was little, I used to ring bells with them. During Christmas time, you see the Salvation Army, they have the, like the little bells and they collect money um, for people that are in need. So I volunteer work started very, very soon for me. But particularly in regards to the on-call team member, um, like, yeah, you know, you join these different professional organizations and I received an email where they were looking for volunteers um, to be on the on-call team. And I thought, okay, well, well, let me see what that's all about. So it has been an amazing, amazing experience. I have had the opportunity to speak with patients, clients, guardians, parents, friends of individuals who have severe mental illness all over the world that are seeking resources. So they might have a friend that they're concerned about, or you know, they were just recently diagnosed with schizophrenia and so are just trying to navigate that whole world. And so they call into the on-call team and we provide resources for them know where they live. So it's been really, really cool. We even have like a whole database that we've compiled uh, based on places um, that we've referred other patients or friends to before, and they've had good benefits. And NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, also will sometimes refer people that are interested to the Schizophrenia-Related Disorders Alliance of America as well. They even have support calls. They also have um, support groups that meet in person, not so much during COVID, but they still have it um, virtually. So just a lot of support because it can be kind of difficult trying to navigate And it's not just schizophrenia, it can be bipolar disorders, it can be depression, any, it's like, that's where it comes like related (laughs) disorders. Anybody that is interested in trying to get additional resources, that's what that's all about. So it's been really, really cool to be able to do that. So why it's important for me to volunteer, um, as I mentioned, it's, it kind of runs in my veins. Even I remember even being little, like my mom would invite like families over for Thanksgiving. So that's always kind of stayed with me. Um, she would cook these really big meals. And if we'd go to church and she would say, okay, do you have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving? You could come over to our house. So she, I feel like my family kind of set the tone and they still do volunteer work. And it's amazing because my grandmother, she still does volunteer work, um, even with the Salvation Army. And you would never know because she's, she just doesn't you know, talk about it. It's like just ingrained in her. It's just one of those things that she just does on a regular basis. So I guess in, in essence, volunteering is just like second nature to me. And I genuinely enjoy it. It definitely puts things in perspective. That's wonderful and you know, very noble. I wonder why you have taken your... Um, your interest in nursing and in, in, uh, volunteering all the way to the PhD level. I mean, if you didn't have to, if caring for people, if that is the underlying, uh, if that's your driving motivation, what made you pursue your, your nursing career all the way to becoming a nurse scientist? 
Very good question. And on top of that, it's like I have two doctoral degrees. <laughs> so I have one in nursing practice, and then I also have a PhD oh in nursing. Goodness, yes. So I think that's been just a genuine love for research. So even when I was doing my courses with my doctorate in clinical practice and nursing clinical practice, I remember having like one of my research courses. I was like, wow, this is so interesting. And I remember the professor was like, okay, Marie, but this is as far as we go because you're not doing new research. (laughs) You're just using the research that exists and creating quality improvement. Um, So while I did that, I was still interested. So even after I graduated with my first doctorate, I was like, I want to do more. So that really sparked my interest. And it's just been amazing because it just opens another avenue for me to, I guess, give back in a way um, as well. So in a way, it kind of does piggyback on my interests, what I enjoy doing, and then doing so at a level that I guess is, you know, at the top of, of our field or of our discipline. Yeah, and you're doing this, you know, you're you're doing all of this work, uh, research, studies, while also practicing and continuing to providing care to patients. How were you able to manage that? Yeah, so another good question. It's trial and error, honestly. So you want to always surround yourself around support. And I would be amiss to say that a lot of my support has come from being a fellow um, in the Minority Fellowship Program. And even now that I'm an alumni, I still utilize those support systems. So I know that within the uh, MFP, my mentor was Dr. Shakita Starks. I don't want to say was because she still is. She's amazing. (laughs) And I have just learned I ask questions. So I've learned when it comes to balancing and doing self-care, I know the MFP puts out newsletters, which I share, by the way, because I love, love, love how it talks about self-care. And there's always some type of meditation, something to reflect in each of the newsletters. So I love, love, love sharing those. But what I essentially want to emphasize is that while you are doing all of that, you ch- it's a trial and error process in that. So I run my own telemedicine practice. So I founded my own, and this was even before... Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And at first I said, okay, well, maybe I'll just do one day a week. And then the rest of it, I will just, you know, do my research. I'll do my, uh, my teaching responsibilities and, you know, being the director and all of that. But then I noticed on that day that I would take, I was kind of like cut off from the world because I was so involved in my clinical practice on that particular day. So with trial and error, I figured, okay, well, maybe I'll do a little bit of my practice throughout the week. So just for a few hours a day, I'll do that. And that's worked the best for me. So that way I'm not feeling overwhelmed kind of by doing everything in one day. And then the next day following, having to catch up on everything that I missed because I was in clinical. So that's just been like a trial and error process. And essentially trying, even though I'm doing so much for others, and I'm, it's great and I love research, I still have to keep reminding myself to put myself first because I want to be able to give my best self to others. So constantly seeking opportunities where I can learn from others, feeding off the positive energy of social support, and then, of course, my religious beliefs in God and pulling on the grace of God to bring me through each day um, as well. How did you get appointed to the Minority Fellowship Program? And if you could perhaps expound on the role that it's played in your trajectory as a nurse scientist. I will never forget when I first started as a, um, a nurse practitioner student in psych, 
the director there, she was like, Marie, and this is actually after I graduated out of the program. She said, Marie, you have come a long way because <laughs> when you first started, you were like a deer in headlights. <laughs> um, and it's true because psych is a specialty that you kind of have to adjust and a lot of self-reflection for yourself too, because when you're working with clients that are going through a lot, it can bring up your own issues that you didn't even probably never think you had or anxiety because you're trying to help them so much or you worried so much about them. So it was a big compliment to me that she said, okay, well, you're doing great, you know? But within that same program, I had a professor, um, Dr. Maureen Curley, who must have seen an, an advertisement for the MFP. And she just casually sent me an email and said, hey, I think you should pursue this. And I'm looking through the requirements. I'm like, oh my goodness, this seems so rigorous. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'll get it or not. And she's like, you can do it. So I applied and then I did get the fellowship. And surprisingly, I didn't get to go that year that I uh, first applied because life happens. We had a, a death in the family, um, someone that was that basically helped to raise me at that time had died. It was a really tough time, but I'm so grateful to um, Janet Jackson because she never forgot me in the sense that even when I had to reach out to her and say, hey, I, I'm not able to do the fellowship this year. She was like, yeah, we, we'd have to do it for a future time. I can't you know, postpone your appointment. And she just never forgot me. So I applied again the next year when things have settled down and I did get it. And she remembered me. She was like, oh, I'm so glad to see that you did reapply because, you know, your application did score high. And when I think about it, like in in the grand scheme of things, my mantra, my mantra is always you're in the right place at the right time, speaking to the right people. So I couldn't even imagine having gone through the MFP at any other different time because one of the first conferences that I attended, Jonathan Metzel spoke at the conference that we had in Tennessee and his work is on schizophrenia. And I was like, wow. So I really felt even when I was there talking about, you know, the MFP, the conference talked about judicial issues um, in relationship to mental illness, just opening my eyes to this whole world that I knew nothing about, like the stuff that I was just reading about and but actually seeing it in practice and seeing how policy is affected, how how patients are affected. It was just really, really amazing. So it just started off with that professor that suggested that I applied and then um, me actually getting it, thankfully, the next time, too, that I applied again. And then just people being supportive. But MFP has definitely had such a huge, huge role and still does. Um, they really are like family, not like they are family. Um, and because you really don't know what you don't know. And so it's not I would have, I I couldn't even imagine not having MFP as part of my um, trajectory as a nurse scientist. Yeah, that's something that we hear, I I hear a lot about from various fellows. And, you know, one of the reflections that always comes up, one of the points that that fellows make, uh, alumni and and present fellows, is this um, community of like-minded persons um, and persons who, who look like you. How important has that been, having this community of people of color, people from other uh, minority groups, having this group of scholars um, and and really stellar scholars? You guys are the creme de la creme. How important has that been? It really has been amazing. 
again, I, I feel like my whole um, education, I never really paid much attention to the race or ethnicity of the, the professors that were teaching me because I always felt like they, you know, wanted to see me do well for the most part. But I would say representation definitely does matter because it's been great to see like all of these powerhouses, especially um, women of color um, in these positions that I sometimes like would feel like, well, I'm like the only one or maybe I'm one of two. And I know there's always like a first for everything, but sometimes, I don't know, sometimes when you're the first for something, it's not that you're like, oh, I intended to be the first, just so happened to be um, that way. And sometimes you get put in these, these instances where I guess there, there's, it's not to say that there's um, so much expectation on you or on your shoulders, but I would definitely say that it's been so helpful in navigating those spaces. So they could share with me their experiences and how they over, overcame certain issues that they might've encountered while, um, you know, in practice or while um, a professor or, you know, while starting their own business or, you know, any type of issues that they might've experienced or came across. It's been really helpful to see that. So, um, and and not just um, among people of color, we have, you know, people that are uh, Hispanic, we have Asian, we have Indian, Native American. So it's really, it's really beautiful to see And what I would say that MFP does really, 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 really well is just highlighting the accomplishments, too, of the various different um, minority um, communities as well. So even educating us, too, on what else is, you know, that's been going on or how it's been going on. And they're very good about about that, especially when we were in Tallahassee and we um, got to have that theme around um, Native Americans, getting to meet with them and hearing their stories as well. It's It was really powerful. Turning now to some of your research interests, um, your research interests include geographic access to healthcare, utilizing geographic information systems, and in particular for individuals with schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Tell me more about that and what it means for underserved communities or this new term BIPOC communities. And and here, if I can ask, uh, perhaps you could start with a, a definition of BIPOC and how that terminology is being used now within the psychiatric and mental health communities and why it's more appropriate perhaps than other terms that have been used in the past. I feel like the psychiatric community has definitely embraced the BIPOC, um, Black and Indigenous people of color term because it's supposed to be more inclusive because it it includes more than just African-American, you know, not just, but it's more inclusive of the different shades, different varieties, different cultures. And so I think psych has been on the same path, on the same pathway with that. I think it gets a little judgment um, from outside of psych because it's like, okay, here we have another term, but I think we should get it right, right? Be a little bit more inclusive um, of that as well. So Uh, My research, Geographic Information Systems, um, it's been such a big deal to utilize it in underserved communities, uh, particularly because geographic information systems, often it's looked at as like a tool. And so 
when it's it's but in reality it's really a science so it's not just a tool um, that we use so better way to think about it if you're not familiar with geographic information systems it deals with location analyses so think about like your gps you plug in an address it takes you from one place to another it can tell you how long it's going to take you to get there you might see some fancy stuff of like exercise places um, so many cool information that can be included in that so that's a, a watered down way, I guess, of way to explain geographic information systems. But you can do so um, even more on a science uh, level where you can run analyses, where you can set the time on your analysis. Okay, what's the traffic looking like at eight in the morning on this particular day? So I can go back and run analyses um, on how long it would take a patient to get from their home to a particular clinic. I can look at crime. I can look at other neighborhood factors because where you live matters. I know that Esri, it's the company that um, is involved with geographic information systems and that they also provide the tools to run these analyses as well. They say that even the zip code is more predictive of someone's health than the, even like maybe their genetic code, which is so crazy to think of, but it makes sense. Like we're providing education to our patients to say, well, you need to exercise, but you don't consider, well, maybe they don't have any parks in their neighborhood or maybe how far do they live from? Is there crime in their neighborhood? It's been really, really interesting uh, to see. And then if you think about it in rural terms, like places that don't have any uh, resources there and how can we get them to that? It's been really interesting. So we take it from that science and make it more translatable for you know, other researchers to follow or other, you know, patients seeking services to be able to follow. So it's been really useful. Are you mainly looking at access to care or? Yes. Other, is, is there other information that you can get, for example, underlying causes or triggering factors for schizophrenia? Yeah, so it's really, really cool. So my dissertation um, looked at sociodemographic factors and location was listed as one of the factors that we looked at. So whether or not they had a life skills coach, whether they had a history of substance use disorders, we did all of those factors and then looked at whether or not they would be adherent to treatment over a period of a year. So there were satellite clinics that um, I looked at that each of the patients could be going to any one of maybe those five satellite clinics. And my research found that some patients would drive like an hour to a clinic that was much, much farther than a clinic closer to them. So again, this is quantitative data, so it doesn't really tell you the why. Why would a patient drive an hour to somewhere else when they could just go up the street? Who knows? Someone mentioned to me recently, they said, well, maybe they were trying to avoid the stigma of going somewhere in their neighborhood and someone might have seen them going into the clinic, which is possible. And and it brings awareness too for integrated care. That's another rising uh, science research topic too, where we're utilizing like primary care to get patients to uh, psychiatric services. So if you go into the doctor and you're just going, you know, for a primary care visit and you say, hey, I've been having depression and all of that, you can just go down the court, the hallway to a psych person, a person that's in psych and not feel like, you know, they can see me walking into a community health center that says mental health clinic on it. So it, it, they're more likely to follow up with their services. But yes, in terms of the GIS, correlating a lot of these different datas and I'm doing predictive studies. Okay. So um, how long did it take them to get to their clinic? How often did they follow up? Um, did they make these appointments? Did they have this support in place? How did that all relate? So patients who had like 
a life skills coach were more likely to follow up. So again, the importance of that additional social support and making sure that they get to their services or get the services that they need. You just made me think about one of the issues that we've discussed with several hosts, and that is the difficulty sometimes in getting people who are uh, suffering or who are facing mental health challenges to come forward and uh, seek treatment, uh, the stigma behind it. How do you see that evolving? Uh, and how big a problem is schizophrenia, especially amongst BIPOC communities? And how does the stigma affect the, the capacity to, to help people? Well, that's a very good question. I feel that surprisingly, even though the COVID-19 pandemic has been such, uh, and it still continues to be a um, very difficult time for so many, I also feel that it's been positive in the sense that it's opened up you know, telehealth, more telehealth, more telemedicine opportunities, particularly amongst BIPOC communities. And, and then the, the, the relationship with schizophrenia, a lot of the delusions that occur are typically um, religious kind of in nature. And so if we think about it in a cultural manner, um, I've had patients where they're like, OK, if they just if we just take them to church, then we might be able to just, you know, pray away these behaviors or pray away these demons, you know, that maybe they're possessed and so it's it's always a difficult aspect to navigate because especially if you think about Christianity and and not to go off too much on a tangent, but um, some of that in the beliefs of, okay, people could be possessed by something, but then the reality of someone really do, having schizophrenia, I think that I, I've had the opportunity to speak um, recently at a panel discussion uh, via Zoom as well, uh, where it was with the church. It was like the intersection of Christianity and mental health. And so I think during the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of churches are now, um, maybe they were before, but they're more open to providing such care because suicide is also on the rise. Depression is on the rise, especially during COVID-19 pandemic. People are trying to figure out how to deal with, with this during this time. We had a lot of social isolation um, still social distancing, all of that. So it's it's a balancing act in trying to reach those communities and using the leaders of those communities to break down a lot of that stigma um, and sharing and hearing them share their stories. So even on that Zoom, you would hear like parents, you would hear, you know, maybe not even the patient themselves talk about it. But then I, you know, would hear later on from like the pastor or something that, hey, um, I've had more people reach out to me, you know, on a private level, just wanting more help, more resources, and also arming the pastor with those mental health resources as well. So it really is a balancing act in trying to understand the different factors that are contributing. It's not just, okay, you know, I this person has that mental illness, but I always think of like, there's a, a model, it's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's like this pyramid and it starts at the basic level, people having food and shelter, you know, that basic level, if you have food and shelter, then you can kind of move up on the pyramid and, and tackle the other aspects of it. Okay, now let's take a look at my mental health and see you know, how can I be helpful? Even in telemedicine with my own practice that I, I had before the COVID-19 pandemic, I just recently presented for the Florida Nurses Association at um, one of their conferences about the lessons learned 
um, during the COVID-19 pandemic through telehealth. So my satisfaction rates, even for my practice, went from 90% um, prior to COVID to 98% during COVID. So it it made me more busy. I was more busy during the pandemic because more people are turning towards telemedicine, telehealth. Not that telemedicine and telehealth is new, but more people were more using telehealth to receive their services. And just in terms of policies, um, like because uh, we were under a national um, state of emergency, there were laws that allowed for practitioners to prescribe in different states that they might not actually live. Thankfully, I am licensed in other states. I'm licensed also in Arizona. I'm licensed in Iowa, Pennsylvania, as well as Florida. So um, I'm able to see those patients anyway. But it really just opened the doors now, insurance companies. I know I just received an email about the Centers for Medicaid um, Services is now going to make it permanent, you know, the reimbursement that you can have um, for telemedicine and, and all of that, which wasn't necessarily something that was thought of before really much, you know. So I think that we're moving sort of slowly, maybe, but we are moving in that direction. Even social media, I think that uh, whether that be through Twitter or you see a lot of people sharing their stories, um, especially amongst healthcare providers during this time where, you know, they're feeling, you know, kind of burnt out sharing their stories as well um, to help us all through that time. So I think it, it's sort of moving in that right direction, but we just have to keep up that momentum. Yeah. And that that you know, brings me to my next question about the digital divide, because uh, to a certain extent, you need to have that connectivity and, you know, the access to, to the technology in order to take advantage of many of these new avenues for accessing healthcare. You recently co-authored an article with uh, Dr. Shakita Starks, your MFP mentor titled COVID-19 and mental healthcare delivery. A digital divide exists for youth with inadequate access to internet. So how big a deal is this? And how important is it to, to have access to technology, to the internet, uh, in order to receive adequate mental health care? Yes, thank you. So that article was such a big deal for us on so many different levels. Um, again, we the beauty of research and, and just writing and publishing is you see what you see in practice and translating that into, you know, how can we do more research on this and make that translatable to the public as well? So from that article, we we brought to the table our own experiences, pr- provided solutions, looked and saw what was in the research in, in regards to um, inadequate access to the internet. So when we talk about access, which again is such a multi-part um, component. Everyone, it's like a buzzword, access, access, access. So much so that I even authored a paper that breaks down that concept of access when we talk, when I'm talking about access to mental health care, what that means. But essentially, you can access the internet through the mobile you know, through a mobile phone. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a desktop; it could be a laptop. You can go to your local library. And then, what we even found in the research is that in India, they have um, mobile services that would go around. There, there was a grant that. They had where patients who had like schizophrenia or severe mental illness, they would go into those neighborhoods and on that bus, there would be a provider that could see them via like computer. And then there's also a pharmacy 
on the bus as well. So the patient would get their services, be seen if they're prescribed any medications, they can get it right then and there, and then they hop off. And so that was really innovative approach to trying to get patients who might have inadequate service um, or access to the internet, access now to the um, internet. Again, it was a big deal because it was also in a medical journal. And so it was a high impact factor um, journal as well. So basically it showed that nurses have voices and we can do interdisciplinary work for sure, but we're not limited to just publishing in nursing journals. We can publish in other journals as well and share our perspectives um, because our, our perspective is important and how can our perspective transform healthcare. So um, it's been really, really a great experience with that. And I really, really um, enjoyed publishing with that particular journal as well. And um, even just the feedback from the peer review um, was very helpful and engaging. And they were just as excited about, about the topic as much as we were and just considering different things that can come about while um, telemedicine is so wonderful, it can help with access. But if you don't have adequate access to the internet, then we have to come up with innovative ways to get them that access. And that even included considerations for like um, the National Institutes of Health granting more funding um, for researchers that are interested in exploring that phenomenon as well. Have you been lobbying, you know, Congress people, um, politicians to affect policy change in this regard? Yes. So I am on um, the health policy committee of the Florida Nurses Association, and I've been on that committee for a while now. And again, it just shows the power uh, that we have as nurses. So we had the opportunity to meet with legislators um, at the Capitol regarding this was before Florida just recently passed in uh, 2019 for autonomous practice for nurse practitioners. So just talking uh, to these legislators about the importance and um, the myths that are associated with, oh, the type of care that nurse practitioners would provide for our patients and all of that. So it was great to become, be that resource for those legislators that had questions um, and they got to speak with nurses like myself um, in regards to the topic. And so we still continue to do that. Um, even right now, a big, there's so many different <laughs> laws that are going on, but um, the big one is really just trying to sustain care for even our healthcare workers and mental health because 2% globally is spent on mental health care. And so trying to increase funding and cr- increase grants in regards to uh, mental health, not just for patients, but also for healthcare workers too, as we continue through this pandemic and with no end. Uh, particularly in sight. So very passionate about that. And it, it's it's very rewarding to see, you know, you've when you advocate for something and see the fruits of that labor. Um, and it definitely is a team approach and, and, and approaching it not just from, you know, a nursing standpoint, but also utilizing that interdisciplinary approach. So even for the autonomous practice law that was uh, recently passed in Florida, the lead legislator on that was an emergency room physician. And he even said, you know, this is this, how much of a benefit can we have? Um, you know, Florida, we, we were like one of the last states to even allow 
uh, for nurse practitioners to write for controlled substances. I mean, Alabama even passed the law before Florida, but it's it's being done slowly but surely. And it's amazing to be able to even meet the um, American Nurse Association president and hear him speak and hear all of the wonderful things that he's doing and all of my colleagues that are also um, advocates and working hard and trailing, you know, the way for others uh, to, to get involved. So it's, it's amazing. And I, I feel very honored to be able to even do that as, as part of that nursing role. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the potential of the profession of nursing, as you, uh, as you've been describing, to really make a difference and and to get engaged at, at so many different levels. One other area that you've been engaged in is also curriculum development. So, working within the with within the nursing academy, tell me more about that and and what you've been doing to address uh, unmet needs of underserved communities with regard to curriculum development. My first course um, was a public health course that I taught at the Florida School of Traditional Midwifery. So I taught public health to midwifery students. And so that was even before I was even a nurse. <laughs> um, and what's really, really interesting and when, whenever it comes to like curriculum is, again, trying to not only make the uh, or allow for the student to be engaged in the curriculum, find it interesting, but then also empower them to make changes like within their community. So I'm, I've always been big on, you know, utilizing case examples, discussions um, to really excite the students to and empower the students to feel that they can make um, a difference in those changes. Now, I would say over the years, I've moved more into like the nursing curriculum as well. So a lot of what we call like the master of science nursing core courses. So you're looking at like your pharmacology, you're looking at your evidence-based practice, health ethics. Um, I literally get excited every time when uh, there's a module within my current ethics course that talks about involuntary treatment for a patient that might have a mental illness and whether or not um, we're impeding on their autonomy by giving them, you know, a psychiatric medication against their will. Um, So uh, issues that you may encounter in practice and how do we approach that in a professional manner? Um, So aside from what we may feel personally, like how do we approach this, that it's, it's, it's safe for the patient, it's safe for everybody. And it's, it's also upholding to law, right? There's laws in place that protect them. So it's, it's also, you know, figuring out if they're competent, not competent, all, all of that too. So it, it's it's very involved. So it's really exciting. But um, so I do that. And then my my favorite course, um, even though I love ethics, my favorite course would be the psychopharmacology course, because in that course, I get to utilize really fun stuff like avatars, uh, where I can change the ethnicity of the patients, can put can let them have an accent, um, just different. They can be young, old, you know, there's a variety of different ways to approach it to give them that opportunity. Uh, to see patients that they might not ordinarily think they would see. Because I know when I first graduated from my degree program, they told me, oh, you'll never see 
you know, patients with schizoaffective disorder. But I graduated and went straight into community mental health. So majority, if not all of the patients that I saw had schizoaffective disorder. So keeping in mind, again, all of the um, social determinants of health that are at play here. Um, specifically, I don't know if I shared, I didn't, I don't think I shared this story yet, but what even drove me to go in to start, you know, my research on or my program of research on patients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders is that I had a patient, um, that was 22 years old, um, African-American. He lost both of his parents to substance abuse. And so our community mental health clinic was, was his support, so he came in and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Miss Marie, that I got Baker. In Florida, we call it a Baker Act, but it's involuntary hospitalized. He said he ran out of peanut butter to take his medication and to make a sandwich to take his medication. So someone on his journey told him this medication must be taken with food. So make sure you take it with a peanut butter sandwich every day. And so just the thought process was so concrete that he was like, well, I ran out of peanut butter, so I couldn't make my sandwich <laughs> to take my medication. And so, and, and it's, it's something as simple as that, but that also drove one of like my first papers that I wrote when we tell patients take this medication with food, but what does that necessarily mean? You know, um, some medications like that particular medication in, in particular requires 350 calories in order to even be effective. And I'll have patients that'll come in that are on like really high doses of that medication and maybe another medication that requires like at least 500 calories, or you'll see like variability in their symptoms. And I, the first question out the gate is I'll ask them, well, do you have an appetite? And they're like, no. So if we know that the medications will not work in absence of food, increasing the dose of the medication isn't going to change anything. So it's, again, looking at those different factors, going back to that hierarchy of needs and saying, okay, well, they need food to eat. And then the education of the clinician, we're, we're technically not trained to be nutritionists. Like, I don't know how much, okay, oh, only 80 calories from an apple. Like we're not trained. We just think, okay, we'll just get with their biggest meal of the day. If they're taking it, you know, dinner, we're assuming that their biggest meal of the day is dinner, but that might not be for every, every patient. Every patient might not even have a dinner. So, you know, thinking of that when you're prescribing and you're coming up with their treatment plans is important. And that's what I incorporate into my courses. I use a lot of case studies, a lot of critical thinking, because that's what we're, we're trying to empower our students to be advocates for their patients and to really look at the bigger picture, which is such a beauty of nursing, because we always look at things holistically and how can we really, you know, push the success for this, this patient, successful treatment. And how important is the sort of the cultural competence part of this? Does that have an impact? Oh, yes. So, for example, another patient that I had, um, he was a patient that was transferred to me. Um, his diagnosis was listed as depression. And his wife kept saying that, no, I don't, the medications aren't working. They keep saying he's depressed because, you know, he puts his head down. He doesn't want to speak. And, you know, and literally when I read over the previous clinician's notes, it just said, oh, depression. And she, you know, just prescribed an antidepressant. Come to find out the patient had schizophrenia. Um, I changed his medications. Um, and this same guy that what wasn't talking at first, suddenly now, you know, with an improved treatment plan was talking. I even ran into him with him and his family at like a, a social like event. Like we had like fireworks. It was like a, you know, like a 4th of July type of a thing. And the wife was just so happy. She's like, I felt like, you know, I finally have like my husband back, you know, um, because the trick 
tricky thing about schizophrenia also is that a lot of the patients have their fir- what they call like their first psychotic break in like their early 20s. So we're you might have uh, some of the patients that I may have are we're talking about students that are on scholarship. I had a patient that was like on a baseball scholarship. Another one was like an international student. Um, she was from uh, Korea. And another um, one was from um, Japan, international students that came and had like their first psychotic break. And then you have to call the parents. They're like, I'm so confused. Why is my child in the hospital? You know, so a lot, a lot of patient education. So and not only just that, it's also for the parents because they're so confused. And then another issue that we end up having is that the patients start to get better. So then they think, oh, it was just a one time thing. So I'm good. I don't need to take medications. And then they, you know. Um, start to have negative outcomes again. And it's like this roller coaster ride to kind of keep them, you know, on the uh, right uh, track per se. So it's a lot. I think that particularly with culturally um, across uh, the world, I do think we deal with a lot of stigma in regards to treatment. And it's also just approaching care in in different lights because uh, the questions that I might ask someone, I'm not well, that we would generally generally ask, like how we're trained to ask. You might want to tweak it to fit way, the way that would be more culturally like acceptable. I might ask a little bit about religion. What are their perspectives in regards to that? What are their perspectives in regards to, in their family in regards to getting any mental health treatment? And some patients will say, Psh, they don't even know I'm here. Or they might say, oh no, I could never talk to my family member about this. And so respecting that. And a lot of times it breaks the ice because you know they're there, they're they're here because they, yeah, especially during through telemedicine, a lot of times my patients will say, I don't even know I just made the appointment because I felt like I needed to make the appointment. I'm glad I'm here. I just don't know where to start. So, you know, kind of just meeting the patients where they are and trying to do so that is particular or specific to their individual plan of care. All of that sounds so common sense and it just sounds very reasonable. But are these, um, you know, culturally competent uh, methods for for treating and for managing mental health care. Is it, is it common to have that level of attention and, and cultural competence amongst practitioners uh, and, and what must be done to improve that? That's a very good question. So I know that a lot of organizations will have to check like a checklist, like, okay, we, we do cultural competence training amongst our providers, or a lot of schools will say, oh, our students are trained in cultural competence, but you don't really know what that looks like in practice. So I don't want to assume that everyone is um, doing that or not doing that. But I would say that it it does take a lot of actually doing it in practice. I can say this for our students. um, We definitely have them do that in real time. So it's part, it's it's actually part of their grade (laughs) where they have to really uh, display cultural competence. And not just that, it's actually understanding any implicit biases that you might bring to the table. Like you might not have realized you were even doing that when you were assessing a patient or, you 
you know, being critical, even changing the language in which we use. So I, I'm always big on that with my pa- my students when they're like, oh, that's schizophrenic patient. And I'm like, no, it's not schizophrenic patient. It's a patient with schizophrenia because they're not di- they're not defined by their diagnosis. And we do that in primary care. Like we wouldn't say, oh, that sometimes they do, oh, that diabetic. No, we say that person with diabetes or that person with hypertension because they're not defined by their illness, you know, or, you know, so it's, it's the same thing in the sense that we have to kind of call each other out on it when we see it and then training our providers to training our, our students to recognize, you know, different ways to accomplish it and to see successful treatment. And that's the beauty of research. So if we're seeing like, okay, well, why are we still not having the type of numbers, the type of outcomes that we would like to see? Why are we having so many readmissions within 30 days of being discharged from uh, the hospital or maybe they're discharged from the psychiatric unit? Why are we still seeing them keep coming? Why does it seem like a revolving door? Like what, what do we need to do differently? And so I have really loved that even within terms of antipsychotic medications, it's come a long way. We now have injectable forms of antipsychotic medications where they can get it once every two weeks, once every month, once every two months, once every three months. And so that's great because if we have a patient that is dealing with a lot of stigma or maybe they even forget to take their medications every day, we can just, okay, you know, talk with them about possibly getting the injection. So it's not something they have to remember to get. It's not something that they'll feel like, oh, I, God forbid someone comes ac- across my medication bottle. I don't want them to think I'm crazy. Like, so those are things that we, you know, have to think about. And it does take a little bit of extra time because, you know, we, as it is healthcare providers, it's like, okay, you're trying to see everybody in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you know, they're triple booked, double booked. So it takes so much time, but again, it takes practice. So with practice, you kind of fine tune how to do that. And then also including other disciplines, beefing up the resources uh, to make sure that we're, we are doing that tailored care as well. One of the reasons I, I asked that is, yeah, you know, I recall hearing from various people how the way that they're treated when they go into a hospital setting, yeah, how a person is treated can be very different depending on their background, on, on the color of their skin. Somebody who is complaining, for example, of, of feeling pain, if they're a white woman versus a black woman um, in an emergency room who is uh, who's, who's saying that they're in pain and need uh, medication for that, uh, might get a different response from the attending healthcare providers. So I'm just wondering how that situation is evolving within the industry. Yes, that's a very good point. And there's research to support that. Even within schizophrenia uh, spectrum disorders, I know that Jonathan Metzl talks a lot about that, that people of color are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than any other. And when the diagnosis first came out, it used to be a middle-aged woman, a Caucasian woman that would be (laughs) diagnosed. Like you can literally Google like different uh, pharmaceutical ads. Like if you want to get your wife to behave, um, then we can prescribe her this new antipsychotic medication. Um, So it's like the, the history of it. How did it go from this to this? Wow. But again, I would say that as clinicians, we need to call out our our counterparts because a lot of times we can be at fault by not saying anything. And I would hope that the needle is moving a little bit with us speaking out a little bit more. And it's not just people of color that need to speak out, you know, 
Caucasian people can speak out. It can be other races that are speaking out um, when they see that, hey, this is not how we would normally approach someone for this. And you see it with individuals who have substance use disorders. That's why they've also changed, instead of calling it substance abuse, they've changed it to substance use disorders as well, because, you know, the language matters. But even with that, you know, we you'll see patients being treated um, like, oh, here comes this drug addict again. You know, like, so it's just having that compassion. And then when you see those instances where you're like, OK, no, this is not this is not OK. You call it out. I I honestly have been that provider before where I've had a patient of color come in and say that, oh, you know, I went to the hospital and they told me that I didn't meet criteria and I just wanted help and da da da. And I, the, I am that type of provider that will call. <laughs> and I know I'm sure they're tired of hearing me, but I will call and say, no, this is my patient. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> and this is how we're going to go about doing it. So it, it takes um, just having enough confidence, support to feel that you can speak up about it and not being afraid to speak up. Because unfortunately in this country, we've had too many instances where people are not speaking up and then it, it turns into detrimental outcomes. So again, I hope that with social media, with the ability to have so much um, exposure than we ever would have had before, that we use the use that in a positive light to be bring awareness and and bring those changes. And like for me, I know that as a professor, I try to incorporate that even into the curriculum as well, so that students can practice. You know, well, what would you do? Like I said, I'm given in the ethics course. Well, what would you do? You know, because sometimes you don't even think about it, or you know, if you were in this instance, what implicit bias are you bringing to the table? So that's a very, very good uh, point. Let me ask you a little bit more about your work in curriculum and in teaching. You're the author of a handbook of geopsychiatry for advanced practice nurses. How did this book come about and how is it being received and what, what can advanced practice nurses get from it? Yeah. So before I uh, went into nursing, I actually do have a certificate as well in gerontology. Um, And so it was great to see that come full circle where I got to write a book on geropsychiatry for advanced practice nurses. So how that even came about, my mentor, uh, Dr. Lee Powers, she was uh, presenting at a conference for the American Psychiatrist Association. And we had just finished working on a paper in regards to cigarettes. And uh, she told me that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm writing this book and it would be great if you would come on board and, you know, contribute. It started off with contribute a chapter on schizophrenia <laughs> and in geropsychiatry. And I'm like, okay, sure. And then before we knew it, I'm like, oh, I, I have something that I can add about this. And I had something that, and then I became co-author. So that was amazing. So anybody that is interested in going into nursing, again, networking, networking is a big deal. Speaking with others, sharing your passion can go such a long way. So before I knew it, I was a co-author on this book um, and it's been being received quite well. It's great because it's a, a simple handbook that uh, provides, again, that direction. If you have a, a patient that you are concerned about, it even looks at, healthcare during the COVID-19 pandemic and um, telehealth and uh, amongst older persons and substance use disorders and older persons. And it's a great handbook for advanced practice nurses to look at like, hey, how do I approach this, um, this aspect of it or this aspect of care in the elderly population and all of that. So it's really been wonderful. And they say that it's easy to read um, and easy to follow. So it's been received 
pretty well. And you can get it at Target, surprisingly. I can order it online from Target. You can order it online from Amazon to get it shipped to you <laughs> within two days. So it's just really been wonderful. This is all really wonderful. And I hope uh, quite inspiring for fellows who are now going through the minority fellowship program. So what are your recommendations for present fellows? Um, what would you recommend they do and how they approach their fellowship so they get the most out of it? I would say embrace every moment, ask questions, participate. You can't get anything from it if you don't actually uh, participate. I would also even say get a professional uh, Twitter account if you don't already have one. Um, I know that Dr. Starks will probably laugh at this because my first fellowship, my first intensives with the MFP, she told me this. She's like, you need to get a Twitter, professional Twitter account so that you can keep in contact with other people that you meet at conferences. And I was like, no, I'm very private. I don't want to have a Twitter account. I'm not on social media. I don't have a Facebook And she's like, no, you need to do this. So I said, okay. So I did it. And it's amazing how many opportunities have uh, people, researchers all over the world that I've met through this Twitter and even the podcast recently that got picked up that I did with the Sunrise Project that got picked up by the Oprah Winfrey Network. I met them on Twitter. So it's just amazing like how much uh, you can get out of doing that. So I would definitely say, Just embrace the moment, ask questions, um, participate, utilize all the resources that are available to you, engage with other fellows. So my colleagues, uh, Griselle Estrada um, and Brianna Singleton, um, when I was finishing up my dissertation and I really got to a point where I'm like, I don't know if I can push through and finish it. It was at that moment that I got an email um, where Brianna um, was looking for anybody that was interesting in being part of the MFP writing group. And I remember I took that whole summer. We had the writing group every uh, day, every day we met. And I was able to finish my dissertation. So it was great because it was great to write alongside them and get, you know, be, have that push to um, continue to write. If I felt like I was, you know, not motivated to get writing, um, just being able to get on, jump on a call with them on a Zoom call and just write alongside with them or they'll, you know, message me, hey, I don't see you. And I'm like, oh, man. And honestly, that's translated into my professional life as well, because I've joined the writing group at my university as well. There's a writing group. So I get to write with other um, professors in different disciplines. Like I have, there's one that's from the English department that's on there that we all get together and write together on Zoom. We're both, we're all writing on our all pers- respective projects, but we're doing it together and it gives us accountability to finish. And then I know that during COVID, um, my uh, church had a like a prayer meeting like every Friday um, or actually every Thursday that they would have a prayer group. And I remember the MFP, we had like a check in, which is awesome. They, we all, There's so many ways to be involved in the MFP, but we had a, a check in and um, like, how are things going, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic? And I mentioned, I'm like, I really miss having that prayer group because our we only had it for just a short period of time. And then they started opening up going back in person. So um, they kind of just scrapped it all together, but I missed it. And Griselle was like, oh, I'll hold a prayer group. And we still do. We had a prayer group today <laughs> on Fridays at 10 a.m. So it's awesome. Brianna's on that call. And then I get to interact with uh, Janelle, Janelle Jones, um, Tao um, Tran. She's also on. So it's it's beautiful. And it's something that I actually look forward to by the end of the week because 
um, we're able to just discuss, you know, whatever we want to discuss and then end it, you know, with a prayer and praying for whatever our needs are. So it's, it's just wonderful. And again, just engage with other fellows. If there's something that you want to see happen, I feel like the MFP team is so open to our ideas and they're so innovative in itself. Like here it is, I'm speaking on a podcast, <laughs> sharing my experiences. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. So I, I really feel that if you can just get engaged, embrace it, dare to be different, you will get the most that you can out of the fellowship. One of the challenges I think that the profession faces is uh, the perception of what nurses do, especially amongst young people. So as we are trying to get more uh, representation within the nursing industry, uh, trying to get more people of, of color uh, more minority groups are joining the nursing profession. How would you suggest that we that nursing changes its perception? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And so, you know, we're four million strong in the nursing profession, and I think we need to, you know, continue to step into those leadership roles where we are more visible. So I uh, believe I was even on Twitter and um, someone posted that uh, even for COVID-19, the expert that they brought in was an advanced practice nurse as the expert. So we need to make ourselves more visible in those spaces. Even on my Twitter profile, I write nurse scientists. I am a nurse scientist. I do research. When we are on these teams, we are the principal investigators um, of our research. We are on interdisciplinary teams. So I think you're 100% right that that you know even young people or the children of our future they they're going based off of, off of what they believe they see um which is in their world right so they go to the doctor's office they're like oh i think that's what is going on um or this is well this is what i perceive it to be and it's just a matter of uh just seeing more of us in these different spaces um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about Nurse Blake, but he was also a graduate of the University of Central Florida, which is where I also got my PhD. And he is a, a comedian and he's on tour <laughs> and he talks about all of his nursing experiences that are pretty comical and it's, and it's different, but he's very respectful of it. Um, and it was wonderful because the turnout, it was sold out crowd. So it's amazing to see like, who would have thought, like, I'm sure that that child wouldn't think, oh, nurses can be, uh, <laughs> uh, comedians. And it's funny because even on TikTok, you see that people repost stuff on Twitter from TikTok and you see nurses, um, doing their own, you know, thing about that. So it's just a matter of just being out there, making ourselves more visible, um, and sharing that and not being afraid to write, yes, nurse scientists or, you know, uh, nurse nurse commentator, nurse comedian, um, you know, there's so many different where aspects that we really uh, bring to the table. So it's, it's amazing. And I think that as that child um, also gets older and they start to try to, you know, explore the different careers, um, I think that they hopefully by then that they'll see that there's just so much more to our role um, and so many opportunities and so many different places and different ways that you can avenues that you can go with nursing. And really the possibilities are endless. Like that, my physician counterpart that said, you know, you really cannot go wrong with a nursing degree. I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. Dr. Marie Smith-East, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. 
I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting minority communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Minority Fellowship Program is a SAMHSA grant-funded initiative. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. 